Well, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. I hope your heart was drawn to your Savior. I hope you received a few gifts that you really wanted. I hope you enjoyed some good food and some time with your family. And I hope you got to take at least one nap. Seriously, if you did not get to take a nap over this Christmas break, I hope you do that today. And I also hope that you enjoyed our Advent series in Isaiah. It was good for me, it was good for my heart to be in Isaiah and looking at Isaiah's four servant songs like we have the last four Sundays. I personally was so encouraged and refreshed by God's love. My heart was drawn to my Savior It's like the Holy Spirit took the gospel and he rubbed it deeper and deeper into my pores. It's like Jesus looked at us and he said, my amplifiers, these gospel amplifiers, they go to 11. But you know what? I'm not ready to leave Isaiah just yet. I need one more week in Isaiah My heart needs one more week. And the passage we're going to be looking at today is not one of the four servant songs, but it follows immediately after the last of Isaiah's servant songs. So turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 54. This is the response to the servant of the Lord that we've been looking at. This is the response that Isaiah wants from us after having looked at his four servant songs. This is what Isaiah calls the nation of Israel to do after hearing about the servant who would come and bear his people's sins on the cross. Isaiah will call us to rejoice precisely because God does love us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And what Isaiah will show us in our passage today is God's heart. We get a glimpse of God's heart. Do you want to know what God is like? Would you like to pull back the curtain into God's heart and see what it's like? Isaiah does that for us today. We get a glimpse of God's heart, how he feels for his sinful people. What Isaiah tells us about God's heart goes hand in hand with what Puritan Thomas Goodwin said about the heart of God. Thomas Goodwin, probably my favorite Puritan, although Richard Sibbs and John Owen are up there. I like Thomas Goodwin because he tapped into the heart of of God. I like him too because he was really weird and quirky. He would wear like seven, eight, nine, ten nightcaps on his head and go out in public. So he was really quirky. So I like him because of that. But I really like him because he understood God's heart. In his book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, or as it's sometimes just simply called, The Heart of Christ. Uh, Thomas Goodwin says this in the preface of his book as he explains what his book is about. He says, The heart of Christ, as now he is in heaven, sitting at God's right hand and interceding for us, how it is affected and graciously disposed towards sinners on earth that do come to him. How willing to receive them. How ready to entertain them. 
how tender to pity them in all their infirmities, both sins and miseries. The scope and use whereof will be this, to hearten and encourage believers to come more boldly unto the throne of grace, unto such a Savior and high priest, when they shall know how sweetly and tenderly his heart, though he is now in his glory, is inclined towards them, and so to remove that great stone of stumbling which we meet with. Thomas Goodwin wanted his readers to place their hands on Jesus' chest and feel his heartbeat, to feel the deep, deep love that Jesus has for his church, even when, surprisingly, even when they sin. And that's what our passage today is all about. Isaiah wants us to know what God's heart is like. How he is graciously disposed to sinners like us. Even though he reigns in heaven in glory right now. This passage is about how ready Jesus is to entertain us. To welcome us into his presence. It's about how he pities us. It's about how sweetly and tenderly his heart is toward us. Is that how you view Jesus? So our big idea today is this. Our sins move Jesus to pity, so let's party. Our sins move Jesus to pity, and the response that Isaiah calls us to today It's to party, to celebrate. Now, when I say let's party, I do not mean that we can go out and sin and it doesn't matter. If you think that, then you do not understand the gospel. You don't understand grace. We are not free to sin. As Paul says in Romans 6.1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No. In fact, the Apostle Paul cautions us against grieving the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. He also says in 2 Corinthians 5.9 that he makes it his aim to please God. And by that, Paul means that we can't please God as our judge. Only Jesus could do that through his perfect sinless life. But we can please him as our Father. So, if you think that you can just live any way that you want to, then you don't understand grace. You don't understand the gospel. But the natural response to the gospel, to the good news that God loves us and forgives us and welcomes us into his presence, the natural response to that is one of celebration and dancing and smiling and partying and rejoicing. So if you are a Christian... Your sins, which you commit all day, every day, all the time, they surprisingly move Jesus to pity more than to anger. Your mess, your junk, your failures, your struggle, your sin moves Jesus to mercy more than to anger. That's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? And if that is true, then the appropriate response to Jesus is to party, 
to pop the cork on the champagne kind of partying, to celebrate joy, singing, dancing, shouting, all the stuff that Isaiah talks about in our passage today. So Isaiah chapter 54, beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So after Isaiah sits us down and he plays us his four servant songs on his record player, what does he say to us next? He says, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. Isaiah calls us to respond with joyful singing because Jesus, God's servant, and because of what he does for us. Isaiah's desire is that we would start rejoicing like a barren woman. Now maybe you're thinking, did Benji just say that we should rejoice like a barren woman? Does he know that barren women don't rejoice? Yes, I know that barren women don't rejoice. They grieve because they want children. They want lots of children. But there is a kind of barren woman that does rejoice. There is a kind of barren woman who rejoices in her infertility. There's a kind of joy that makes you rejoice even when you're barren. And that's what Isaiah is getting at here. The imagery that Isaiah is using here correlates to the nation of Israel as they sat as slaves in exile in Babylon. It all felt hopeless, like they would never return home to Israel. It felt like their sin was getting the last word in their lives. They were barren. They were empty. It all felt so hopeless, like a woman who is barren and desperately just wants to have children. That's how the nation of Israel felt, hopeless and helpless. So Isaiah is reminding them That God has always given his grace to the barren, weak, and helpless people of this world. In fact, these are God's favorite kind of people. People who have nothing and cling only to Jesus. Does that describe you? If it does, you're God's favorite kind of people. That's why Isaiah says in verse 1, Sing, O barren one, because people who are barren spiritually are the ones that God fills. People who come with the empty hands of faith are the ones whom God fills. Do you feel barren today, just empty? You feel empty today? Do Do you bring nothing to the table except your sin and your weakness? Then rejoice Because that's the best place to be. Oh, we don't want to be there, do we? We don't want to say, I'm weak and I'm helpless. We avoid that like the plague. But that's the safest and best place to be. That's the people that God picks 
for his team, people who have nothing, nothing to offer, nothing to improve God's team of making it to the Super Bowl, nothing. People who have nothing and they're absolutely desperate, those are God's favorite kind of people. So Isaiah tells those who are in exile in Babylon that they better go buy new and bigger tents because the Lord was going to expand their families and expand their land. They would be like the old woman who lived in a shoe and had so many children, she didn't know what to do. In other words, God was going to revive and restore them. This is how God works. This is how our God works, Grace. He specializes in restoring what is lost and what is broken. He fills what is empty. So understand this. God is looking for weak people. God is looking for broken people. He's looking for empty people frazzled people, scared people, hopeless people, desperate people. God is looking for people who have nothing and come to him empty-handed so that he can fill them and give them all that they need. And then, who gets the glory? God does. So your emptiness and your brokenness and your desperation is a blessing because it humbles you. It's a blessing because it leads you to Jesus where he meets all of your needs and then it glorifies him, which is what life is all about, right? Life is all about God's glory. So it's a win-win situation when you are desperate And you go to Jesus, it's a win-win situation because you get filled, you get your needs met, and then God gets all the glory. So God is looking for people who are at the end of their rope. And that's where you find God. Do you want to find God? Do you want to know where God is in your life? He's at the end of your rope. He's waiting. And when you get to the end of your rope, that's exactly where you will find Jesus. Unfortunately, we try to avoid that. We don't want to go there. We don't want to think about it. And Jesus is saying, here I am waiting on you. But you know what? you got to meet me here at the end of your rope. When you have nowhere else to go, no one else to turn to, and you have exhausted all of your resources, that's where God meets you. At that place of weakness, at that place of emptiness. God meets us at the place of our despair. That's when he can really get to work in your life. The question is, are you brave enough to admit your weakness? Are you brave enough to admit your need? Are you brave enough to admit that you are desperate? To not put on a front with Jesus. To not walk around with a little bit of swagger. To get low before the Lord and say, I'm desperate. If you are, Jesus will meet you in that moment with all of his magnificent power. Now, this is all wonderful news, of course, but does this remove the consequences of our sin? 
No, we still have to suffer the consequences of our sin. Just ask Israel. Just look at the nation of Israel in exile as slaves in Babylon. Does this mean that life will be easy? No. Does this mean that sin gets the last word in our lives? No. So that means we have nothing to fear, even if we have seriously messed up our lives. Just like Israel. Or even if we have some serious baggage in our past. We have nothing to fear. Do you have some serious baggage, some sin from your past that still haunts you? Like dragging it around like a dead body? The good news of the gospel is that shame does not get the last word in our lives. And that's exactly what the nation of Israel needed to hear as they sat in exile because of their sin. And the prophet Isaiah was so happy to supply this very good news to them. Isaiah is going to tell them that they don't have to have a pity party. They can just have a party because their sin and their rebellion has actually moved Yahweh to pity. Look at verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. So the Lord tells the nation of Israel, he's going to bring them back home, but they will not return home with their tail between their legs. They're going to come home like a happy dog with its tail wagging. Shame will not have the last word in their lives. In fact, they will forget their shame. They will not be bogged down with condemnation about how they went after other gods and then ended up in exile. They will come home and party. And so can we when we have walked away from the Lord and come back to Him. When we return to the Lord in honest repentance and confession, He does not shame us. He welcomes us. He doesn't shame us because of our sins or shame us because of our struggle with sin or shame us because our struggle with sin is not what we want it to be. He doesn't shame us at all. Jesus does not shame us because of our lack of obedience. Let me say that again. Jesus doesn't shame us because of our sins. Jesus doesn't shame us because of our struggle with sin. And Jesus doesn't shame us because our struggle with sin is not what we want it to be. Meaning, he doesn't shame us because of a lack of obedience doesn't shame us because we fail. No, Jesus pities us. He's sympathetic. His heart goes out to us. He's merciful. It's a wonderful reunion every single time we return to the Lord in repentance. It's like a party. It's a wonderful reunion, Isaiah says, when we return to the Lord in repentance and honest confession of our sin. He says it's like a party. I mean, you should be shocked by this grace. 
You mean to tell me, Pastor, that when I come to Jesus, the infinitely glorious, eternal Son of God, when I come to Him in His presence and I tell Him about all of my sin, you mean that's a party? Because it doesn't seem like those two things go together. But they do. Isaiah tells us it would be like a party when Yahweh brought his people home from exile. It would be like a husband and a wife who are reunited. The nation of Israel, Isaiah says, would be reconciled with their husband, Yahweh the Lord. And who is their husband? Listen to how verse 5 describes the Lord. He is the maker of the entire universe He is the Lord of hosts or the Lord of the armies of heaven. He's the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer. He is the God of the whole earth. Wow, that's Israel's husband. And when you're married to that guy, everything's going to be all right, isn't it? When this God is married to you and committed to you, then you have absolutely nothing to worry about the God of the whole earth. And that means that we have nothing to worry about here at Grace. Who is leading this church, protecting this church, watching over this church, committed to this church? Isaiah tells us here is the maker. It's the Lord of armies, the Holy One, the Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. I think everything's going to be all right. And when this God is not angry with you anymore, when he has compassion on you, it's time to party. Look at verse 7. For a brief moment I deserted you, But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. That's the second time now that Isaiah has called the Lord our Redeemer. It's the Hebrew word that means the next of kin. It's the next of kin who comes along and says, you have a problem, it's my responsibility as the next of kin to take your problem as my own. We see that at the cross, don't we? Jesus says, I will take your sin, your problem, unto myself on the cross. And we see that now as our merciful high priest, whenever there's kind of any kind of misery or sadness and sorrow in our life or a broken heart, Jesus says, as your redeemer, as your next of kin, it's my responsibility to enter into your world and make your trouble and your, trouble and your sorrow my trouble and my sorrow. He's the redeemer, our next of kin. And even though there were consequences to Israel's sin, and even though they were briefly deserted, as Isaiah tells us here, and taken away to exile, Yahweh says, I will bring you home again. And there will be no shame involved. No, I told you so's. No, shame on you's. No, how dare you? None of that. No, I told you so's. No, shame on you's. No, how dare you's. Yahweh says, I will bring you home with great compassion, with deep compassion. Now, the Hebrew words that Isaiah uses here in verse 7 for compassion and verse 8 for everlasting love are two sides of the same coin of God's love, if you will. Compassion 
is related to the Hebrew word for womb. So it's this surging maternal love. It's the love of being in love. It's love centered in the emotions and in the heart. The same word for compassion here is the same word that's used in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, which says his mercies are new every morning. They never come to an end. That's the word here, this maternal love. And so you could translate Lamentations 3, this way, his womb-like, surging, maternal mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. In other words, he hugs us close like a mother with her baby. Wow. You moms know what I'm talking about, don't you? Dads, we know, but there's... A connection between a mother and a child that I think even a father can't understand because you carried that baby for nine months. And the Lord is saying, I will bring you home with great compassion like a mother with this surging maternal love. I will take you in my arms and hold you close to my chest. And then there's the everlasting love, which is the Hebrew word hesed, which we've seen over and over again in the Old Testament. It's God's loyal covenant love. It's, it's his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's a love that is centered in the will, meaning God is flat out determined to love us no matter how bad we are or how far away we run from him. He cannot be persuaded to stop loving us. Not even our sin can prevent his love. Not even our unfaithfulness can change his faithful heart. So what Isaiah is telling us today is this, our sins move Jesus to pity, so let's party. Isaiah wants us to party and to celebrate precisely because Jesus pities us and has compassion on us. He wants us to rejoice, to cry aloud, to hoop and holler, which is what I planned on doing yesterday when the Oklahoma Sooners were playing, but I didn't get the chance to hoop and holler because they lost miserably. But that's what all the LSU fans did. They partied, they celebrated because they had good news to celebrate. Isn't this worth celebrating, hooping, and hollering about? Jesus is sympathetic. He's merciful. He's like a parent dealing with sick children. And that's really what sin is. It's a sickness. It's not our identity. Sin is not our ultimate identity. Our identity is that we are in union with Christ. We are God's adopted children. But we're children And we have a sickness that remains in us until we die. It's sin. We're God's kids and we're sick. Sick with sin and so we're messy and sinful until the day we die. Now think about this, Grace. For those of us who have repented of our sin and are trusting in Christ alone, our sins move Jesus to pity more than to anger. 
Our sins move Jesus to compassion more than to anger. Think about it. That's incredible. What you did last week that you swore in a thousand times you would never ever do again, when you did it again, it moved your Savior to compassion, not disgust. So let me ask you, is that how you view Jesus after you've binged on sin? Maybe you've nursed that grudge and that hatred and that anger towards that person. You're just like, oh, it's so good. Oh, yes. And then you realize this is wrong. Do you view Jesus looking at you in that moment and say, oh, I just have compassion for you because you're just sick with sin? Do you see him moving towards you in pity and mercy and compassion? Or do you picture him full of wrath and anger? Is that how you view Jesus after you've wallowed in sin? Sometimes I think we think that this is how Jesus responds to our sin. Have you seen this meme online, the screaming cat meme? It started gaining popularity earlier this year. And so what people do is they insert some words on the left or the lady screaming and pointing her finger, and they have some response from the cat who's sitting at that table eating, I don't know, Brussels sprouts? I don't know what that is. Sometimes Christians are apt to think of Jesus using this ugly, or this uh, screaming cat meme. That Jesus is saying, you sinned! And we're like, uh, what'd you expect? Sometimes we think this is how Jesus feels about us when we sin. That he screams at us and that he's utterly disgusted by us. Is that how you view Jesus? If it is, then Puritan Thomas Goodwin has a word that you need to hear. And I've shared this with you before, but it was just appropriate to read it again. He says, your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. Christ, he takes part with you and is so far from being provoked against you as all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yea, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that hath some loathsome disease, or as one is to a member of his body that has the leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh." But he hates the disease, and that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What Goodwin is saying is that it's like if you break your arm, you're not mad at your arm, are you? You're not wanting to get rid of your arm. You hate the fact that your arm is broken. You want your arm to heal. You don't want to cut your arm off and get rid of it. Or it's like a parent who's moved to compassion when their child is sick. That's how Jesus is towards us. What happens when our children get sick? We don't hate our children when they get sick, do we? No, we pity them. We hate the sickness. We hate the fever. We hate the stomach bug. We hate the cancer, but we don't hate our children. We pity them. We love them. Our heart breaks for them. Our heart moves out to them in compassion even as we hate the sickness that is ruining their body. And that's precisely how God is with us. He hates our sin. Yes, he hates our sin. He hates our sickness. Make no mistake about that. Jesus hates sin. Let me say that again. Because he's never going to change his mind on this. Jesus hates sin. Oh, how he loves sinners. 
Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he pities us. Oh, how he comes in mercy to sinners like us. Oh, how his compassionate heart moves out to his children when they have binged on sin. Oh, how his merciful heart moves out to us when we wallow in our sin and we wallow in our sickness. Thomas Goodwin also says this about Jesus. If your child becomes very sick, you do not kick the child out. You weep with him and tend to his needs. Christ responds to our sins with compassion despite his abhorrence of them. Jesus comes to us and helps us. He helps like a parent helps and cares for and is merciful and faithful to help their sick kids. I mean, no good parent ever tells a sick kid, hey, just get better. Quit being sick, okay? Get busy doing stuff. Get up out of your bed and clean your room. Break your own fever. Just get better, will you? No good parent ever says that, and Jesus never says that to us about the sickness of sin that's dwelling in each of us. No good parent ever says that. Instead, a good loving parent loses sleep when their kids are sick. A good loving parent cuddles next to the sick kid. A good loving parent wakes up and checks their child's temperature in the middle of the night. A good loving parent gives their child medicine. A good loving parent cleans up their child's vomit. A good loving parent changes the bed sheets even in the middle of the night. Why? Because we love our children and our hearts break for them when they are sick. And Jesus does that for us because we are sick with sin. We can't help ourselves. We can't make ourselves get better. All we can do is lie in bed and cry out to God, Father, Father, Daddy, help. And what medicine does the Lord come with to heal us? You know the answer. It's the gospel. And that's why we need to be in church every single week. Because this is where we receive the gospel. Ian Duguid says, Our hearts need to be constantly refreshed by his gospel announced in the preaching of the word and tasted in the Lord's Supper. Do you ever get tired of hearing the gospel? Is it possible to focus on it too much in church? If you think that, you are in desperate danger of losing the plot and starving to death in the desert. It's word and sacrament that heals the sickness of our sin. It's the ordinary means of grace that heal the sickness of our sin. The word of God, prayer, and the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And so as we head into 2020, let's do everything we can to expose ourselves to the ordinary means of grace. Listen, in 2020, make church a priority. Make corporate worship with the family of God on the Sabbath, make it a priority for your family. And make prayer a priority, where you just cry out to God, I'm sick, help. And make the Bible a priority. We're going to be sending out an email this week about Bible reading plans for next year. And if you've not signed up for our devotional emails that go out Monday through Friday called The Vine, there's information in the bulletin for you to do so. Email us today or tomorrow, because on Tuesday, we're going to send out some information on reading the Bible in 2020. Don't miss this opportunity to help heal the sickness of sin. 
Let's dig into the Bible next year. We need God's word because we're sick with sin. The good news of the gospel is that even though we're sick with sin, Jesus doesn't despise us. So right now, Christian, Jesus responds to your sins with compassion. He will not kick you out. Just as a parent would never kick out their sick child, so too Jesus does not kick us out. He responds to our sin with compassion despite his abhorrence and hatred of them. And that's good news. And that will make you do what Isaiah says in verse 1. Rejoice. And so here's a better picture of how Jesus receives us when we return to him in repentance. This is a famous picture of a soldier returning home to his family after Vietnam. I mean, look at the joy. Look at the emotion. This is how Jesus welcomes us when we return home in repentance. This is a picture of the gospel. This is what Isaiah is getting at in verse 1. Rejoice, sing, party, pop the cork on the champagne bottle because Jesus welcomes us with open arms and with joy. Not how dare you and not, I can't believe you did that. You promised me you'd never do it again. He says, come here. It's true, if not absolutely surprising and staggering. Our sins move Jesus to pity. So let's party. Let's party in 2020, okay? Go to work tomorrow and somebody says, how was church? Say, my pastor told me we need to party in 2020. And then you explain why. Because my sin moves my Savior to pity. And they're like, what? And then you tell them, that's why I'm going to party in 2020. Does that warm your heart today? Does this make you want to forsake your sin? Does this make you want to hate sin? Does this make you want to kill sin? Does this make you want to sing? Does it make you want to party? That should be the response to Isaiah's four servant songs. As we look to God's servant and we listen to him, what should our response be? Joy, singing, shouting, hooping, and hollering, P-A-R-T-Y. You see, it's as we begin to really taste and savor the gospel, as we really begin to savor what Jesus, the servant, has done for us, then our cold hearts start to melt. As T.H.L. Parker said, the church is the place where the gospel is preached. Gospel is good news. Good news makes people happy. Happy people sing. But then, too, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners. And good news makes people happy, and happy people sing. Even unhappy people can sing to cheer themselves up. Why sing? Why rejoice? Why be happy? Because God takes our barrenness and God takes our emptiness and he fills it with good things. He fills it with himself. So we can be honest about ourselves with God. Our sin is real. Our failure is real. But that doesn't scare God off. Isn't that amazing? 
He values honesty. He values an honest assessment of ourselves and our hearts, and he wants us to get real with him. Now, that may be scary because when we get real with God, we begin to see what's really inside of our hearts. And it's embarrassing, but being honest is not the death of us, and being honest with God is not the death of our joy, it's the beginning. Being honest about the embarrassing things that are in our hearts is how we start the party. We're not being party poopers when we address what's in our hearts. That's how the joy comes. That's how the party gets started. And that means that we can sing today no matter how much we have failed. We can, top, we can pop the top of the champagne bottle and have real joy when we get real with the real Jesus. I mean, who would have thought? We can have real joy. We can really sing. We can really rejoice when we get real with the real Jesus. We can open our hearts, lay our embarrassing sins before him, bring it all out into the light, and then we can actually rejoice for reals. When we return to the Lord in honest repentance and confession, He does not shame us. He welcomes us with joy, with open arms. No shame, no fear, no condemnation. We can lay it all out. You can lay it all out this morning. All of the embarrassing stuff that resides in all of our hearts, all of the stuff that we're ashamed of, we can bring it kicking and screaming into the light of the gospel and not be ashamed. We can sing. Our sins move Jesus to pity so we can party. Let's do that now, shall we? Jesus, thank you for your love for us, for your mercy, your compassion. Thank you for not being disgusted with us, though you sit enthroned in heaven in white hot glory, still your heart beats for sinners on earth. And this is amazing good news. Would you let this good news begin to thaw out our cold hearts, to melt our hearts, Lord, and then by the power of your Spirit. With the promises of your word, would you help us to drag our darling sins kicking and screaming into the light of the gospel, knowing that there's no shame, there's no condemnation. And then would you, would you transform us, Lord, and help us to party, help us to sing, help us to hoop and holler for your glory, for your glory. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.